Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, just listeners, all my listeners, non-subscribers. I'm giving you a free Pesca Plus. The paid Pesca Plus subscribers would have gotten this in their feed two months ago. When you heard a version of it, a truncated lesser, ah, okay, you can say time-conscious version of a very interesting, funny interview with Stephen Wright. But I just wanted to put down an example of what one might be privy to should one subscribe to Pesca Plus. If you said, I heard this, okay, compare, contrast, say, oh, it's a little bit longer, perhaps a little bit better. Perhaps it fits into my lifestyle, perhaps it doesn't. Perhaps the lack of advertisements is really what's working for me. Go to subscribe.mikepesca.com to check it out. It's Wednesday, June 21st, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Philly Collapse. That phrase usually refers to Super Bowls or, among pulmonologists, massive internal organ failure resulting from reliance on a mostly Drake's Cakes and Cheesesteaks diet. But as of a week ago, the Philly Collapse became an acknowledgement that a portion of Interstate I-95, which I realize is redundant, Interstate I-95, but that piece of road went down like a row house during the Frank Rizzo administration. And now, now, a scant 10 days later, the announcement was made. I-95 will reopen. So who's the hero? Don't say the governor, don't say the workers, though they did their role. Say, recycled glass aggregate. Or say it in a much punchier way as WCBS Channel 2 does. Pennsylvania's governor says crews will work around the clock to rebuild a temporary roadway made in part with 2,000 tons of recycled glass nuggets. Glass nuggets. Not all heroes wear capes because they don't cut capes in nugget form. But you know what else is relying on nuggets for innovation, advancement, and efficiency? Only the world's most beliked coffee chain, as ABC7 reports. The coffee shop chain is changing its ice cubes, replacing the current cubes with smaller nugget ice. Nugget ice. Nice. But who does it help? Just all of us. WSLS Channel 10 Roanoke has details. Nugget ice is made with machines that use less water, helping reach a goal of cutting its water usage in half by the year 2030. Okay, you heard those nuggets news nuggets. But you also know the rule of three. Three makes a trend. And there it is, hiding in plain sight. The third. It is a six foot 11 Serbian and his band of basketball playing brothers. At last, the long wait is over. After 47 years, the Denver Nuggets can finally call themselves NBA champions. Yes, 
It is the summer of nuggets. From the hardwood to the cold brew to the Tacony section of Philadelphia, everything's coming up nuggets. And I'm more than happy to plug it. On the show today, 6-3, it's short for a Denver nugget. But for a Supreme Court, 6-3 was said to be a slam dunk for conservatives. Don't worry, the basketball references end here. But my analysis on the dangers or purported dangers of a 6-3 conservative court is in the spiel. But first, let us now put instant coffee in the microwave and go back in time, as it were, because I refer to the iconic monotone of comedian Stephen Wright. You know him for his one-liners. He said, sorry, we're closed. I said, what do you mean you're closed? The sign says open 24 hours. He said, not in a row. But you might find it interesting, in fact, I'm banking you will, that he has become a first-time novelist, complete with extended thoughts, digressions, everything that could flit across the consciousness via an avian visitor to the mind of a seven-year-old, as channeled by Stephen Wright. The name of the book is Harold, comic legend Stephen Wright, up next. Harold is a seven-year-old boy living in the New England area in the 1960s. Stephen Wright is a 60-something-year-old man living in the New England area today. He's also one of the best comics of all time, and with Harold, the author, for the first time, of a novel. It has a chance, who knows how novels work or what gains fire, but maybe future generations will one day regard it as a surrealist masterpiece. It is both funny and vivid, and I also think it really gets at the nature of youth and perception and where thoughts come from. It was a joy to read. I'm now joined by Stephen Wright. Hi, welcome to The Gist. Thanks for having me. Thanks for those compliments. How much of Harold is you? Oh, uh, it's really all, all of me. I mean, it's, you know, I, my act is like, you know, a couple one sentence, one jokes, dun, 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 and hopefully have an audience laugh out loud at these two or three sentence things. It's my birthday recently. For my birthday, I got a humidifier and a dehumidifier. <laughs> Put them in the same room, let them fight it out. <laughs> and that's a very narrow window of creativity. I used to work for the factory where they make hydrants, but you couldn't park anywhere near the place. <laughs> I used to be a proofreader for a skywriting company. Meaning there's a lot of stuff in my mind that wouldn't be go into the form of jokes. So when I started writing Harold, just I wrote a story for Rolling Stone magazine about in 1988. It was a fairy tale about how the beach was invented. <laughs> and every five years I would read it and I really liked it. And I thought I should write something else, but I never did. But then about seven years ago, I read it and I thought I should write something else. So I just started writing this thing about Harold in school I didn't I don't know it just came to me immediately I didn't ponder it and as I started going into it I realized that I could use his head I could put a funnel on his head and I could pour into his head all that I think about life and 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 like stuff that would never go 
through in a little window of jokes, right. you know? So it was like I used his mind as an excuse, not as an excuse. I, I was able to get all this other stuff that's in my mind out through him. Yeah. But I never thought ever during it. I mean, you know, you read it. So, you know, this seven-year-old wouldn't be thinking about 85% of this stuff. But I didn't care. And I never thought of, like, what would a little kid think in this situation? What would a, someone this age think of this subject? I never thought of that because I'm automatically seeing it like that anyway. I'm automatically observing the world like all artists, you know, you're just extra noticing all artists from noticing paintings, books, movies, music. It's, you're reacting to what you're noticing. Right. Also, if you applied the decree, oh, no one would think that or no one would think like that. It would be such a limitation that you wouldn't have a career. The things you think <laughs> of are appealing because no one would think of that. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't. I didn't. Uh. Right in the beginning, I thought, I don't care that no, like seven year old. I wasn't writing it. I had no book deal. I, no one was waiting for it. I was just, I enjoy writing. And uh, I really learned when I started texting like 10, 15 years ago, whenever it was, I learned, I didn't notice, I knew I liked writing jokes. I knew mm -hmm. that for years and years. But when I would write texts to people, I noticed that I would write it like correctly. I had the sentences correct. I had it smooth. I had it moving, like moving, like I wanted, they became little, they weren't funny. Sometimes they were funny, but even if I was telling someone where I was going to meet them on Saturday, I wrote it absolutely correctly. And I noticed that I liked writing, even if it wasn't jokes. I didn't really know that before. So that opened up a whole my, thing of my mind. Wow. So you're the first person who ever was inspired to become a novelist because of your joy and affinity for texting. Yes, because the jokes are very calculated, assembled concepts. But I was assembling, all right, I'll meet you on Saturday at 930 if this happens. And if not, you know, I, I would never abbreviate. I would never use the, the, the slang. I would write all the words out. I was having fun and enjoying of assembling the words. I didn't even know I liked, I knew I liked words. I knew I liked sentences from assembling the jokes, but I didn't know that I liked it even if I was, you know, telling someone I was getting new shoes. So there are lines here. This book can be read as a series of jokes interconnected with interesting scenes and a character sketch, but there are just lines. In fact, there are hundreds of lines that very well could be a classic Stephen Wright one-liner. Teeth are a skeleton preview. Coffee is cocoa with poison in it. <laughs> there are never two yesterdays in a row. All right, those, I could see that that would be a Stephen Wright joke, but I've also heard you say you never know when an audience will think a joke is funny. Really? Even after all this time? Yes, it's fascinating. I mean, in the, I learned that in the right in the beginning, I couldn't tell, of course. And for every three jokes I write, only one of them gets a big enough laugh to stay in my act. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, when a baseball player, if a guy's batting 300, that's great. But he, that means he got out seven times. Yeah. So the, the bet, but so getting back to your point, 
if I write it down, if I think of it and I write it down, it's because I think it's funny. But it's then I have to try it out. I, I cannot predict, even now, all through these years, right from the beginning, I cannot predict which one they're going to laugh at or not. And if they don't laugh, I try it three times. If they don't laugh, I throw it away. If they laugh three times, then I'll keep it. Because the first time they laugh, it might be it might have been a fluke. Mm-hmm. And the second time, okay. The third time, you can count on it. But when the ones I throw away, it's not that I don't – I still think they're funny. I don't think I was wrong. But they didn't agree. And they're in right. charge. The audience is the editing. They're editing the thing. So the book was very interesting because I didn't try, I didn't read it, I didn't try it out. I mean, when when it was done, I sent it to a couple of my friends, but the stand-up is like meticulously assembled. You know, this was like writing a, this was like telling a, uh, it took me seven years to write it. So it was like I'm seven years and then it comes out and if you went, Ratio wise to the jokes, it would, I would have to write four books in order to get one that would work. So I'm happy that this book worked because I had no idea because there was no testing. A guy, you don't test paragraphs on on an audience. An audience, you know, I'm going by my gut. Right. So I have a couple thoughts about that. One is that. If you were to test it and only, or if somehow if there were some mechanism to do that, would it really improve the book? Maybe it would improve the quality of the one-liners as one-liners. But in terms of defining a character or getting inside this kid's head, if everything was the most polished, you know, uh, kind of joke that got the best reaction, would that actually serve the purpose of your story? That's question one. And question two is... You know, is it that the jokes that get the biggest laughs are the most profound thoughts or the ones that elicit this uh, spontaneous reaction, which is a great thing and why we pay for comedy and it releases dopamine and makes us feel good, but it's not the end-all be-all of art. No, I th- the, the jokes that get the biggest laugh are not the profound jokes. And I never even thought of that till you just brought that up. I never put them into categories. But in my mind, it's like the giant jokes are not profound. And, and getting back to if the book was tested as you wrote it throughout, throughout, like you were saying, it was polished and everything. I actually think that wouldn't make the book, it would make the book worse because it would remove the character of it, the reality of it. And as you're talking, I'm thinking it would almost be like your finger, your brain is like a fingerprint. How your mind works is like everyone has a fingerprint. Your mind, everyone's mind works differently. That's just how it is. So if I was testing it, it would almost be like test me testing my fingerprints. Yeah. You know, like drawing fingerprints and making testing them out. What, what do you think of this right. curve? What do you think of this curve? You know, you might get like a, a you know, an assembled amazing perfect fingerprint if even though that doesn't even exist. But it would be wrong, you know. People, right. The, 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 you're, that's very interesting that you bring that up if you tested it throughout. It wouldn't be it anymore, really. It's just different than the, the jokes. The audience has to be, they have to go to the show. They have to, you have to make them laugh because they're paying to go to the show. So you got to do the material that you know that works. But the book had completely other 
rules. It, it was just totally different, which was very enjoyable. I enjoy the stand-up, not saying I don't, but this was a whole other way. Were you doing stand-up at the time you were writing the book? Yes. The book took on and off for seven years, so I was doing shows all through that time. But right. when I was writing the book, I didn't even intend to put any jokes in. I was just writing what was the what's happening in the class. I had no plan. I didn't I had no outline. I had no map of where it was going. I was just trying to write two hundred words every time I sat down. I would drink coffee. I get high on coffee. And I was mm -hmm. I wrote the whole book blasted on coffee. I was high. I mean, in fact, I thanked coffee in the credits and the acknowledgments. Were there any lines from the book that you tried as jokes on the stage no i didn't but in you know when the book came out people kept pointing out the as i was writing it i would think of a joke and i would just insert it right there it's like i can't help thinking of jokes i didn't even intend to put jokes in like that will make help it i was just writing about the kid in the class and then sometimes my mind would assemble a joke and I, okay, I'll just stick that right in. But in mm. hindsight, talking to you and other people, I could, I'm going to lift some of those out of the book and try them live on stage. I mean, there's one in there about, uh, why would there even be a needle in a haystack? Right. <laughs> <laughs> but then some of the lines, some of the, uh, let's call them aphorisms are great are uh, profound, all right? But they remind me more of a lyric, you know, the present is a past factory. That's not a joke. That's certainly not gonna get a laugh, I don't think. But it's a lovely uh, bit of poetry or an idiom or it could be a nice lyric to a song. And you know, this book or this outlet is the first time you really had the uh, freedom to engage in that sort of communication where you're not even really with a line like that going for a laugh. And I wonder if you enjoyed that. Yes, I did. In fact, I have re written many songs and recorded many, many serious songs in, in my life. And that is a line from one of my songs, the present is a past factory. So it's interesting that you said that that could be a lyric. It is a lyric in an actual song. And, it, and, and it's not, I know it's not laugh out loud. It's more like, this, it's fascinating. So I got to like say all this stuff that didn't have to try to get an, people to laugh out loud with. Right. As someone who thinks about words and lyrics, do you find that sometimes lyrics that are taken as profound really aren't. It's just that the song around them is great. You know, the Beatles, the love you get is equal to the love you give. Is that really so profound? Or do, do we just like the Beatles in that song? Mm, I think that that was the true thing of being profound. It's so simple. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I think some of it is, some of it isn't. I, you know, I love them. I love the Beatles too. Okay, let's take another one I was thinking about the other day. I've seen fire and I've seen rain. I've seen sunny days that I thought would never end. Like if true, that would spell doom for the planet, would it not? I mean, the first two, <laughs> the first two phenomenon are things everyone has seen, so it doesn't really distinguish the speaker in any way. And then the third thing is just kind of displays his ignorance of, you know, drought. <laughs> uh, the, the thing about... <sighs> Music is you don't have to be, there's not, it doesn't demand logic. Like 
the like the the jokes have to make complete sense even if they're making an absurd point you just can't say you know 500 rowboats were flying through the sky i mean that's right. just that's just you know you need to have it's like mathematically this plus this equals this at least in the stuff i do yeah i've i've written many songs i've also painted Painting is my first thing before I ever wrote anything. I used to paint realistically, and then in my 20s, I completely changed to abstract painting. So you have the jokes, the music, and the abstract painting. The jokes demand complete logic. Then the music, like the lines, like that line we're talking about, and even those lines you're saying in those other songs, you can get away. It doesn't have to be exact. Somehow music allows you to just round off. I guess that's what poetry is. You, You know, it doesn't have to make total conscious sense. And then when I paint, there's there's no there's nothing. That's the furthest of like there's no logic at all involved. Huh? Was was it your joke? It's a small world, but I wouldn't want to paint it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a small world, but I wouldn't want to paint it. So that's one of those jokes that I, I, it's probably taken away from you, right? It's like one of those things that Lincoln or Churchill says, and people just believe <laughs> it's been out there in the ether. Did that come from your past as a painter? <laughs> no. that I know you weren't doing house painting. <laughs> n- n- no, that was from just my mind thought of like, it's a small world. You hear that term all the time, your whole life. It's a small world. And then one time I thought of it, and then I just said, but I wouldn't want to paint it. It was like... I just added, it was taking it literally, logically, and then it's like, it was, it just struck me one day, is that's the setup, that's the setup to something, and then I wouldn't want to paint it, came immediately. It's also the economy of the joke is, is perfect, right? You don't need any big setup, you don't need people say, or maybe you've heard people say, just boom, small world, wouldn't want to paint it. Yes, I learned early on to, to not waste any words at all no filler one time i went to the drive-in in a cab no big setups movie cost me 95 dollars it was just streamlined just fact how can i get the point across with the fewest amount of words about four years ago i no it was yesterday Which also, they kept, they would laugh more. The audience would would laugh more because everything was so short. And since they were laughing more, I was more comfortable standing on the stage because they were laughing more. Because everyone has, I didn't even feel comfortable on the stage. I didn't realize this until years later, thinking back that, oh, maybe that's why the jokes are so short. So I don't have to stand there talking in between as long. Well, you also speak slowly, which I think the audience can tell is not an affect or put on, but did that either help the audience concentrate or I'll throw something else out there. If you spoke quickly to fill a 40-minute set, you'd have to write, I don't know, 2,000 jokes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like when I would do a TV appearance, five minutes, it would come out roughly to 20 to 22 jokes for five minutes. And and my my voice, I mean, I, that's just a total gift accident that 
the that that helped what I'm the material so much just simply because of how I speak that it elevated it by accident. This is just how I speak naturally. And that's how I think naturally, abstract. I didn't think, well, I need to do something different. I know I'll do one-liners. I, there was never any plan about anything, just like the book. I, had no, I didn't even know where the book was going. But anyway, it's an accident that the abstract thinking and how I speak mesh together to this distinct style just, just by a fluke. Now, as far as abstract thought, the cover of the book, and I'll mention this oh. because of your background in painting, right? It's brilliant. It's this boy's face in black and white, but we don't see his face. We see a framed picture, and in the picture, three beautiful birds uh, in color. So it reminds me a little bit of Magritte and the pair in front of the uh, man in the bowler's face, which is, you know, a great nod to the abstract, but... Uh, my listeners should know that a motif of the book is that these weird thoughts present themselves as a different kind of bird flying into Harold's head. And you must name a hundred different species of birds. I bet you went deep in your research of birds. But how did that idea come to you rather than just the thoughts just appeared that manifesting themselves in this physical way as these often exotic birds? Well, the cover is just fantastic. I can't believe the the illustrator uh, did that. I complimented him. I mean, he he read the book, and that's what he came up with. And I said to him, I, he didn't know I loved. I mean, he, surrealism is in the book. I mean, he it's yeah. all through the book. But the cover was like exactly perfect. And I told him that like this is amazing. Even if it wasn't the cover of my book, even if it didn't say my name or Harold, if it was simply a painting. It's stunningly beautiful. He really, he said he read it and he wanted to do something really good for it. And he, I, I could not be more thrilled. People see the, they get compliments on the cover all the time. Now the rectangle on the birds where it says in the book uh, uh, that he, Harold imagined. See, I, as I wrote the book, I remembered things that I thought of over many, my whole lifetime. These odd things that I thought of, I would remember them as I was writing the book, and some of them I would just insert right in. The thing about Harold thinks that in his head there's a little, there's thousands and thousands of tiny birds, and each one represents a specific thought. And there's also a tiny rectangle in the middle of his brain, like an empty picture frame or an empty... Uh, window frame and if the the birds it's like an indoor sky in his mind so the birds are flying and if they accidentally fly right through the rectangle whatever that bird represents that's what harold thinks that's why it seems like his mind is jumping around from one subject to, to the other but i think everyone's mind really works like that but i thought of that before i wrote the book just as an amusing thing for myself, like imagine that this is how your mind really works. This is how my mind is working. The whole, the birds, the rectangle, it was, had nothing to do with the book. Then as I started writing the book, I thought, oh, I'll just insert this into his head. I'll have him explain to the reader that this is how his mind works. And that enabled, I, enabled me to change the subject constantly. 
like in a logical way because the birds represented a thought and most of the birds i made up i made up their characteristics i made up their names there's some real birds but i had fun inventing the birds i i don't even know really much about birds i know like five birds people have been asking me are you really into are you an expert no i know five birds <laughs> <laughs> I know five birds. That is that's up the, there with I have a pony. A great yeah, 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 you're right. I, as I'm saying it, I'm thinking it's such an insane sentence. <laughs> it could be like yeah, I'm on the dating game and the and the girls asking the three contestants. Bachelor number one, tell me a little bit of like about yourself. I like five birds. Bachelor number two. <laughs> uh, uh. That's that's something. Okay. There is this concept called the monkey mind, and it's supposed to be something to guard against or that, that tortures people. They can't turn their thoughts off is how it goes. And people who practice meditation say, oh, it's good to calm the monkey mind. From what I understand of the monkey mind, I think I have one and I think I like it. Um, I appreciate the fact that I'm constantly generating thoughts. What about you? Do you, I don't know if you've heard of this concept, but how do you do you like the fact that there are all these thoughts that maybe you can't turn off, or do you maybe you meditate? Maybe you do some things to occasionally get away from the thoughts. I do meditate sometimes, but not because of the thoughts. I enjoy. I never heard of the monkey thought. What did you call it? A monkey what? The monkey mind. The, the constant mind. churning of yeah. Not being able to the turn monkey off mind thoughts. sounds like it had negative connotation. Like it's too much. I don't think it's – I like my mind. I mean, it. it I have fun with myself. It, it, in the book, it says that Harold is his own best friend. I mean, that's about me. I feel like I'm my own best friend. It's like I'm hanging out with myself. I'm never lonely. I almost see myself as plural. There's me and my thoughts. It's like I'm ha – and, and my thoughts amuse the hell out of me. I would never try to slow them down. It's like a little circus is in my head. I feel so lucky that that, 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 that that this is how my mind works. And it sounds like you enjoy it too. You're not thinking I got to stop this. You, you said you like it too, right? Yes. I like having an outlet for it. But And if I didn't, maybe that would be frustrating. But I do. I amuse myself. I do. Yes. It's yeah. great. Yeah. Things occur to me, and I'm glad they did. They don't. It doesn't torture me. Maybe that has to. Maybe that interacts with other aspects of my personality, like my general lack of anxiety. I don't know. Oh, good lack of anxiety. That's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have that? Yeah, I'm not very anxious at all. I mean, I exercise every morning. I ride a bike uh, for an hour, go on these long rides, and then I'm. I'm so relaxed and I'm extra awake. Then I add coffee and then I go, it's just fun. It's fun being, yeah. it's fun being awake. <laughs> How much coffee do you drink a day? I drink three cups in back to back to back and I get blasted. Like I'm on drugs. I'm like, I can't, I am blasted on drugs. And then it then it starts to wear off. It lasts about two hours, and then I eat something, and then it I get calmed down, and I get very like relaxed, and then the whole process starts again the next day. Yeah. How about How you? you? How much coffee do you drink? I do it with iced coffee, but three cups is is what I do essentially, oh. which is like four or five cups of ice. You know, if a cup is eight ounces, yeah, I'll drink twenty four to thirty ounces of coffee a day. 
And Do you I've, love I've coffee? Been, I love coffee. I've been told, oh, you got to watch out for coffee. Of all the drugs, it seems to have less of a downside. The only downside is if you go off it you'll not do well. But isn't that the same with toothpaste or fluoride or <laughs> insulin? <laughs> That's funny. Yes, it is. I think right, I it's tell true people- with to- Toothpaste is a drug, I'm sure, in some way. There are, dr- there are pharmaceutical <laughs> components to it. I'm not going off that. <laughs> That's funny. It's hilarious. I think coffee is one of my top favorite things about being alive. I think so too. Yeah. It definitely helps all the other things too, right? I want to ask you another question, which is this. Have you ever found or have you found that your surrealistic material from the 80s or the 90s is coming true, comes true after a while? There, I can't think off the top of my head right now, but there is a couple, three, about three or four things I made up that were just insane and now they are real. But I, yeah. <laughs> you ready? You ready for this? I read this article in the New York Times yesterday. I think a couple days ago. Where are the heads? Hordes of ancient statues pose that puzzle. Many museums would like to match their headless torsos with the missing heads, but a debate between a Turkish and Danish institution makes clear it's not always so easy. That is a Stephen Wright joke, isn't it? Yes, it, the joke was, uh, I went to a museum where they had all the heads and arms from the statues that are in all the other museums. <laughs> yeah, it's in yes. Denmark. They're apparently yeah. Turkish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they're having a debate like they don't want to do it, like they're discussing it. Yeah, I wonder who has greater sway in that debate, the torso side or the head side? Oh. <laughs> Oh, that's so philosophical. That's amazing. What a battle that is. I think it actually, in real life, has more to do with like which of those two parts were stolen or expropriated. But I would just love, you know, a, a half hour debate, the virtues of deferring to the torso versus deferring to the head as the real statue. Yes, that would be good if you were driving somewhere and you had a recording of that meeting. You're driving across the United States and you're approaching the Rocky Mountains and, and you hear the guy saying, I don't know, I think the head more is intellect. I, I don't know, you, you know, 30 <laughs> minutes as you're going into the mountains. Yeah, and then at the last minute or like, you know, some bonus episode, and now, speaking for the penis, it's the Michelangelo <laughs> people. <laughs> And now a word for the penis. <laughs> yes. That's hilarious. The name of the book is Harold. It's written by Stephen Wright. I could read you all of his credits, but just know this. He knows five birds. <laughs> I know Thank five. you so much. That was great. Thank you. I really enjoyed that. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. Tomorrow, Thursday, the Supreme Court will be issuing some of the more important decisions of the term. They've already handed down major decisions in cases involving Google, Twitter, Alabama voting laws, a Teamsters strike, the EPA, and Native American adoption rights. Now we hear, in lots of places, about the danger of the conservative majority 6-3 court. The Hill reports trust in Supreme Court plummeted amid rise of 6-3 conservative court. CNN senior Supreme Court analyst Joan Biskupic 
was on Jonathan Capehart's Washington Post podcast. Here's how he set up the conversation. And its 6-3 conservative supermajority has shown no qualms about overturning precedent and creating new legal theories to achieve long-held goals of the right. On this program, you just steal safe space from the hurly-burly of all the argle-bargle. You heard that very argument right here. Michael Waldman, president of NYU's Brennan Center, was decrying the runaway power of the 6-3 court. Right now, we've got a 6-3 supermajority of very conservative justices who are most of the time in significant ways operating as part of a kind of a political machine. And I think that that is part, at least, of why the court's public support and credibility is plummeting. The left has raged against this machine, and it seems for good reason. Hello, Roe is overturned. That was a conservative supermajority 6-3 decision. Also, gutting gun laws, 6-3. So coming into this term, the stage was set, and precedent, which the Supreme Court loves, was established. But then something weird happened. This court has so far issued 39 opinions of the 57 cases it's heard. We're waiting on the rest. Want to guess how many of the 39 opinions have been 6-3, with the conservative majority making up the 6 and the liberals the 3? The answer is zero. Not a case. By the way, how trivia questions work, if the answer was 9, I wouldn't have asked it. There haven't even been any 5-4 cases where the three liberals got one conservative to come over to them, the losing side. It wasn't that the liberals have won every case, but it is the case that the losingest justices have been Alito and then Thomas and then Gorsuch in that order. The justice whose opinions became the law of the land most often, Sonia Sotomayor, thus far. So what is happening? Well, like I said, some of the big decisions haven't been issued yet. Here's Bloomberg previewing the upcoming cases, quote, legal observers expect the 6-3 conservative majority, the most right-leaning court in over 90 years, will vote against affirmative action, undermine Biden's student debt plan, and side with the website designer. This was in a uh, a gay wedding, don't want to design your wedding invitation case. But like I said, legal experts, Bloomberg quoting legal experts, legal experts have been wrong thus far. It hasn't been a particularly conservative court thus far this term. And legal experts, those experts, were surprised that Native American rights were upheld by a 7-2 majority, with Alito and Thomas comprising the two. They were surprised when Alabama's racial gerrymander was tossed out with Kavanaugh and Roberts joining the three liberals. At what point do we have to conclude that maybe these legal experts were making assumptions based on anxiety as much as evidence or proper power of prognostication? Well, yes, yes, we are very likely to see affirmative action in higher ed go down. But I ask us all to consider, is that one of the most important cases? Maybe. Is it more important than the case where 6-3 didn't rear its society-defining head? Allen v. Milligan, that was the Alabama election case. Sure, if affirmative action goes down, the college application process will change, but the fundamentals of democracy won't. Oh, and by the way, if affirmative action in college applications are disallowed, that is in line with the opinions and the will of most Americans. I just bring that up because cutting against the will of most Americans was a critique of this 6-3 runaway super conservative court when it came to past decisions. 
Another of the big cases yet to be decided, that wedding invitation maker's right as an artist to turn down a job to create invitations for a gay wedding. Just to know where I stand, I argued with David French on this case. He thinks that it's a proper extension of First Amendment rights not to compel someone to make art for any reason they don't want to make art. I said a wedding card maker is more of a commodity and and vendors who peddle commodities should not be allowed to deny access based on sexual orientation. So I would, if I were on the court, be voting with Sotomayor, Jackson, and Kagan, but I don't know why the gay wedding invitation case is so much more important than the voting rights case or the Native American rights case, or even the cases that Twitter and Google won, holding them harmless for expressions by users of their platform. Granted, those cases were decided 9-0, but it doesn't make those cases unimportant just because they weren't close. And then we have to consider the independent state legislature theory case, or the case of Wackadoodle versus say what now? Sorry, I read that wrong. It was Moore v. Harper. It's an extremely consequential case. The Bloomberg article, which I quoted before, citing the looming 6-3 conservative majority, was titled, Supreme Court Leaves Politically Fraught Cases for Last. And the first line reads, Buckle up, the Supreme Court has saved some of this year's most politically explosive decisions for the end of the term. But Moore v. Harper would be the most consequential, except for the fact that it very much seems destined to fail. The six do not agree with independent state legislature theory. In fact, maybe even only two or three do. At oral arguments, a few of the conservative justices expressed skepticism. Here's Justice Kavanaugh. Your position seems to go further than Chief Justice Rehnquist's position in Bush v. Gore. And to give you a glimpse into Kavanaugh's mindset and why he values adhering to the 23-year-old Bush versus Gore ruling, well, here he was 23 years ago on the steps of the Supreme Court being interviewed by Wolf Blitzer on CNN. I think what we're seeing is more of a divide over how to interpret the Constitution than really political differences. I don't think the justices care that it's Bush versus Gore or if it were Gore versus Bush. What they care about is how to interpret the Constitution. What are the enduring values that are going to stand a generation from now? That history, plus the skepticism he expressed. Plus, take into account Amy Coney Barrett's skepticism. By the way, she also, like Kavanaugh, worked for the Bush side on Bush v. Gore. It all seems to strongly suggest the independent state legislature theory is a loser. And so then, if it does lose, if we get this ruling and it goes down, will it be interpreted as, well, there is yet another piece of evidence that cuts against the fear of a 6-3 conservative court marching in lockstep, taking away our rights, issuing crazy theories, that how it's going to be interpreted? I doubt it. All of these decisions that haven't been of that 6-3 makeup seem to do nothing to calm down the most worried amongst us, who also in many cases seem to be the most learned. The New Yorker quoted Mark Lemley, Stanford Law professor, as saying of the current term, if the court decides that we don't have a right to elect the winners of elections, as it seems poised to do, it may dismantle the political apparatus of our country for good. This echoes the dominant explanation among those who are most worried. They look at every piece of data that doesn't confirm their theory, and they say, etiam sed tamen, or to translate from the Latin, yeah, but still. No decisions have been 6-3 with the liberals getting crushed. Yeah, but still. Okay, of the 39 decisions thus far ruled on, 25 have been 9-0. Yeah, but still. Okay. Alito and Thomas are the biggest losers, Sotomayor, the most frequent winner. Yeah, but still. 
please. I really hope we haven't totally lost our ability to update our priors in the face of new evidence. And if you promise to do that, if you're one of those who were concerned that I was among that group, but if you've been ignoring all the latest evidence, I suggest you take it into account. Just think anew about what it means. And I swear I will do the same. I will not be surprised if we, in fact, start seeing a bunch of 6-3 rulings in the future on very consequential matters. Yeah, it hasn't been that way so far, but we still have a few more to go. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist, Peru, 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 and thanks for listening.